This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to Foundation and Podcast, the officially unofficial podcast for Foundation on Apple TV+. This time, we're considering feedback for Season 1, Episode 9, The First Crisis. Respect and enjoy the podcast. All right, Aaron. Uh, I know we have probably a lot of feedback to get to, but I- I'm kind of itching to talk about something in the Goyer foyer. Yeah, uh, before before you come into the podcast, please enter the Goyer foyer, wipe <laughs> your feet, uh, make make sure you, you're ready to transition into the main podcast. But yeah, I, uh, yeah. I had uh, six or seven points that uh, I want oh, to talk about. As six well. or seven. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I took I took close notes. Uh, do, do you want to, to hit hit me up with your? It's sure for your uh, your your foyer issues. It, yeah, and it is kind of an issue. Um, it, he said it, so. He said a couple of very interesting things about history early on in the podcast that I thought might apply to like writing, picking up somebody's work and adapting it to screen. About like history is subjective, no matter how you tell it, because you are deciding inevitably where to start and end that story. And that to me was intriguing given sort of where we start this story, right? We go back a right. little bit because, um, you, you know, episode one is pretty close to what happens in the book, but also we flash back to before then. So we have an effect told to uh, started to tell this story from a point that exists before the book start um, or at least that first book, right? Uh, and, and of course, you know, Isaac Asimov did that. Um, at some point he went back and wrote a little bit of uh, prelude stuff, but mm-hmm. yeah, I thought that was super interesting. If, if we do get to talk to David again, I would love to ask him about how he decided where to start telling this story and how that might affect sort of what we think about the history of the story. That was not my issue. I thought that was interesting. Okay. That was not my issue. Here's my issue. He said something else later on in the podcast when asked about Harry Selden. Um, and Invictus. He said that Harry Selden knew that Invictus was there. And in fact, if you go back to episode one and you watch what he's doing on like a data pad or something, uh, you can see that he is manipulating an image of Invictus and he is sort of putting it out in the outer reach. So Harry Selden knew not only that the Invictus existed and still existed but he knew exactly where it was or or at least a high enough degree of certainty that it was in the outer reach to be confident in putting that into the calculations of psychohistory that to me is insane like i i I don't know how that could possibly be true but i want to like sit down here with you and speculate a little bit on how it might be true and sort of try and give him the benefit of the doubt because that sort of breaks everything. We've talked extensively in the last few episodes about psychohistory and its inevitable uh, shortcomings. It's it's reach essentially. Like, what can it and what can't it predict? This seems to be, to me, one of the things it most definitely cannot predict. 
yeah, I, my eyebrows kind of went up on that too, because it's like, you know, we, we talk about the gray area between individual predictions and, you know, uh, mass of humanity predictions. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Cause, cause here's the way, I guess one particular way you could think about it. Um, the location of Invictus does not, it's, it's an, an at this point, almost like an, uh, a, a natural phenomenon. Yes. It's not being piloted or guided by humans. It's been a derelict for over a thousand years. So like the question is, does Harry have the resources to devote to running something like this down to put it as a, a piece on the chessboard that not like the Anacreans are going to find it or the thespians are going to find it just that it's, it happens to be jumping like on the borders of the galaxy where the empires it's weakest and it's got this powerful weapon. It's going to, so like, did he now, if so, if he was just tracking that as one of his variables in his, you know, like, well, the, 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 the empire is inevitable collapse. I don't have any problem with that. If he's like, it's going to be at this exact location and it's going to be used by these people in this way. And this year that gets to be a bit of wild for me. But I, mean, I don't even, know if that's what he was saying. Even a general location. I don't know that he could say it would be in this galaxy. I mean, it, we're, we're talking like, about a so ship like, that's full kind of space and jumps into random points of the universe, sh- right? Not just well. That's what Farah's. That's what Farah and and uh, Salver surmised. Yeah, but I'm like, I don't know what value, the evidence for that is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure. Uh, um, no, it, it sure. I mean, maybe there is something else here at play, and that's that's why I wanted to talk about it because it, I assume Harry could have spies, right? He could have little birds. If we're talking about Game of Thrones context, that tell him. Well, let's, 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 let's also that talk about like know. The scale and scope of Harry Seldon's power, like if he uh-huh. came up with cycle history 20 years ago and is 30 years ago, like it's like with his senior, it's it's, it's it was his, uh, you know, master's thesis or whatever. Yeah, that is incredibly that would be an incredible way to build wa- power and wealth. Like, because imagine if you had cycle history today and you just started making plays based on the stock market, you know, because uh-huh. that's a perfect that's the perfect use of cycle history. Right. <laughs> right. Right. Pretty you could movies. make Warren Buffett blush with the amount of money you could make in a decade or two. And with that kind of power. Yeah. What kind of like you said, spies, surveillance satellites, probes, um, star map. I mean, I, I, I don't know. Um, and it's it's hard to like. On a throwaway comment that, that that David makes on his podcast uh, here, it's hard to say exactly what he meant by that because again, well, it's he, not a throwaway he, comment. I mean, it's built into episode one. You are looking at the Invictus; he's putting it in the outer reach. Like, well, that's it, what I mean. But we don't know okay. whether that's like uh, that's just like yeah, there is this big super weapon that's derelict for a thousand years, floating around in the outer reaches, and that's going to you know have a high probability of coming into play because somebody like I don't know if it's that kind of thing or again. You know, 32 years after the founding of the first foundation that the Anacreans are going to be in a Thespian mining thing that I have a problem with. I don't know if that's what he meant by it. Um, yeah, but like I am just being aware of it and tracking it and kind of like I, I, I don't I don't know if I have a problem with that, but you're right. It is one of these border gray edge cases of the show flirting around with the idea of psychohistory that could uh trip people up yeah i mean it tripped me up so um is there any other ways we could think of that as being like not like i was, I was just, I was just like well harry's smart and he's powerful he, he has a lot of money probably i'm surmising he's he's got the resources to track this thing but um uh some yeah that's what i was wondering like some advanced uh 
telescope or something where he's looking around and happens to find this. I, I don't know. I don't know. All, all of these things are going to be ass pulls for me trying to, uh, Oh, I guess that's I guess the other thing is like, do we allow, there's a feedback about this, about this podcast that he did on, uh, Sean Carroll's pot, you know, the astrophysics podcast last week, which I haven't listened to. But we get some feedback on it and hmm, making okay. comments on coincidences. Like, would I believe that Harry Seldon is an amateur astronomer in the way, same way that Salver's dad did? It was kind of like stargazing and he happened to see the Invictus. Oof, yeah. Like, would I, I accept? I mean, you kind of have to. It's possible, astronomical right? Astronomical odds. Yeah, it is. It is. But literally astronomical odds. Right? But we're talking about a galaxy <laughs> spanning like the the odds. Astronomical odds go way up when you're talking about eight trillion people fucking around, you know, over a course of 30,000 years or so. Oh, uh, sure. The, the yeah. set of what's possible just really would expand, I, w- I would imagine. Still, um, still a microscopic uh, possibility in the grand scheme of things, like a trillion yeah, people gonna, on on a in an isolated galaxy. Yeah, not not so yeah. much. So I, I, the one thing I thought, like speaking of things that might throw people just because I know, you know, people on the Internet, uh, one of the uh, co-producers and writers is, uh, her name is Victoria Morrow. She joined the podcast this week. You know, they've had a rotating list of, of other writers and producers on clearly a personal friend of David Goyer. They have a long relationship mm-hmm. that goes back to their college days, but she also does not like science fiction has never written yeah. for a science fiction project before. And has a clear personal antipathy towards the character of Harry Seldon. Oh, yeah. She dislikes this man, thinks he is an arrogant, you know, overbearing, borderline abusive character. I I think that there's going to be some fans that hear that and they're going to flip their shit. Um, Now, I actually personally don't think that you need to have previous science fiction writing to do write science fiction because Mm -hmm. you got to nail the characters and relationships before any kind of work of fiction kind of comes to life. And like, that's way harder than doing some you know, high concept tech stuff, you know, um, about being an antagonist to Harry though. Like I kind of liked getting that perspective in the writer's room. I don't think it's a predominant maybe spirit, but yeah. like when she said it, Goyer was like, Hmm, okay. Okay. Yeah. But, but like, I like that there's a little, because I think that Harry would be like, they talk about this podcast. He'd be an incredibly polarizing figure. Yeah. About, you know, whether he's a prophet of doom, whether he's a crackpot, whether he's a cult leader, where like, People would have tons of opinions and like it would be weird to try to write that if your whole writing room is just united and, and praise and, and worship of, of Harry Seldon, like like their Termini or yeah, something. Sure. So I didn't have a problem with that, but I imagine some people would would be like, fuck, fuck the shit. Um, and I also really like the other shows that she's written for, like Deadwood and Weeds and, and a lot of a lot of really uh, good stuff. And she's working yeah. within the safety net of David Goyer, who clearly, I mean, if you listen to him talk, has bred and loves science fiction for a long time now. So, indeed, um, they we we had this question about like the psychosis, the space psychosis, mm-hmm. um, like why isn't Farah crazier? And it sounded like from this podcast that uh, Goyer envisions this as like like almost like getting a chest X-ray, only more so. Like <laughs> one exposed jump will definitely have severe psychological effects, and maybe that's why she was a little bit more, um, you know, a little bit more crazy for violence in this episode. 
but like multiple ones would have increasing levels of jump. And he, he mentioned that a normal human, it's interesting. He said normal human, not a spacer mm-hmm. couldn't survive more than a couple of jumps without becoming like a vegetable. And to me, I thought that's an interesting idea. Cause like, that's a cool p- piece of world building. Like, are we going to meet a character like a crazy nutter type character that has been through multiple space jumps? Yeah. Um, is that a possible way for someone to en- enhance, get to like a, a higher level of consciousness or something? <laughs> I, it, it's neat that it's not just like a, well, you did one jump and now you're, you know, I, I, I actually thought that's, that's some, some cool story hooks for the future. Um, we did not like the thespian praying mantis ships with the knuckle busting gun control. <laughs> mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting that, they essentially got out to shoot that shot and because they'd run out of money and time, they had no previs, no screen. They had no idea what these ships would look like and how they would exactly yeah. behave. And it feels to me like they're that's maybe one of the reasons this seemed a little goofy is because the people acting didn't really know, like, you know, it helps when you're just trying to say like, ah, oh, ship's coming after me. It helps know like what it looks like, what direction it's come, coming from. And they really just kind of shot that sounded like I could be wrong. Mm-hmm. But it sounds like they shot that pretty broad to kind of like make all this stuff fit. And maybe if they had the time to the, the storyboard and previs and do all that, that they, it would have meshed a little better. So once again, one of the, one of the perceived weaknesses of the show seems like it was uh it was it was it was a budget and time thing um which they might wrinkle out or iron out next episode um the other thing i really i and i didn't even notice this watching it is that the two dons the actor that plays don is a is a brit and has a natural english accent and the evil the replacement don speaks in that english accent yeah i didn't notice it either but. It's so, but it's, it's very noticeable. Like when, yeah. when the, he's like, you know, taunting Don and he go and, 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 and our Don says practicing, what are you talking about? And he switches instantly to that, you know, sniveling American accent and goes practicing. What are you talking about? And then goes yeah. right back to his evil bond. I, I'm actually I, I, listening to this podcast. I'm even more impressed with, uh, mm-hmm. with our Don, uh, or oh, the yeah, guy that plays Don Cassian Bilson. Yeah. Or Bill, yeah. Bill something. <laughs> Yeah, uh, he's 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 real solid. So yeah. I mean, I'm enjoying to see because mul- we'll see multiple iterations of this guy over the next couple seasons. And that was like I was you know, obviously Dawn and Dusk have always been solid. And it, it's it's good to see that this guy's got some good fundamentals, too. Um, but yeah, I think that uh, that does it for the Goyer foyer. Unless uh, unless you have other objections, I think we can now move on to the, the main portion of the podcast, which consists of people sending us emails to foundation at baldmove.com. Uh, let's take a quick break. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, first up, Greg, short and simple. Why do you think, well, I don't know. Greg might be tall and very sophisticated, but his question is short and simple. Uh, why do you think Demerzel was able to do the spiral when she's completely technological, but people are supposed to get rid of the tech when they are doing it? Well, I mean, how's that enforced? You know, because we saw it, Demerzel was just taking the tech off them. They were, they were, I suppose it's an honor system and she was not very honorable. If it's an honor system, so you're saying you're positing that it's an honor system and they would never trust the empire to like, you know, so, so he knew he would have to like, uh, pass a performance enhancing drug test at the end of the thing. Like, you know, uh, it would, it, I, I would, I gotta say, I would have liked if the, the council of three who are judging his vision, if like one of them had like, or, or maybe, uh, uh, Halima had demanded like a, like, Hey, grab a knife and scratch his hand or something. So we can see he's got no nanobots or something. Yeah. Um, you can take one look at his feet and know that (laughs) that's, I guess that's true. Yeah. It looks like he's fucked up. So if he came through and he had no damage at all, they'd be like, what the hell? Um, and presumably that's what Dimmerzel would look like. Um, yeah, yeah. So I guess my question is Dimmerzel can definitely take physical damage. Um, 11,000 years is a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Maybe the rules changed. Maybe people's feeling that, you know, we just don't know enough about the robot wars, when robots became rare, what people's attitudes are towards robots. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you look back in 11,000 years in human history now, like we have radically different ideas and as far as what we think of in terms of family and justice and law, um, living conditions, all, all those things, uh, just, just hierarchies in, in, you know, like whether we put up with kings and pharaohs or not, um, I, it's, it's, it's tough to say. Like, I think these are questions that you're supposed to ask. And I would be highly shocked if we don't start getting some of these answers with Demerzel in the seasons to come. But for right now, I think they're deliberate mysteries that we're supposed to wonder about. Yeah. Um, there's also another possibility that uh, Alavian uh, suggests. They say, how does Demerzel's existence pre-Empire make any sense? The Empire would have had to repurpose her being 10,000 years old and her spiral walk being 11,000 years ago. It begs the question how the rules can be rewritten if the Empire can slide into the zeroth position. Uh, without knowing anything about the robot wars, was there anything uh, or anyone saying that Demerzel might not or might have been a human before becoming an android? This would make a lot more sense to me. Uh, about her vision she had for the spiral walk. Maybe the robot wars, re- religious wars, and the copying of human consciousness into a soulless body led to luminism, adapting that into its teachings. A lot of supposition here, but like the core idea of like, what if Demerzel started life as a human mm. is interesting because clearly we have the transference of consciousness. But I will say that in the Asimov books, which I don't think deal in transfer of consciousness, um, 
robots were kind of always their own thing. And I think that if you had a, like a human brain inside of a robot body that Asimov would not call that a robot, he just called a human. Hmm. So Demerzel being referred to as a robot, as an artificial being, like to me says that her mental processes are not that of a human at all. But what do you think? about? No, I I think I agree. Um, I I do wonder how like robots were created where they just sort of, you know, you can go on the internet and find like a website or pictures of, of sort of amalgamations of humans, right. Where they take like the traits of all humanity and then they boil it down into one face or something. Um, Do they do that for the robots? Do they sort of create an artificial face or do they model them after specific human beings? Um, Cause she, could be modeled after someone who looked just like her um, and was a lot like her. And then even her personality could be programmed around that person. But yeah, what, how was she created? I don't really know. And again, I'm not an expert at the robot series of uh, the Asimov, but it's my understanding that like in uh, Asimov thought that there would be a class of robot that would be essentially visually. I mean, I don't know if you open them up, but like visually indistinguishable from uh, a human being. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, I guess, the Westworld robots and the, the later versions of the Westworld robots are. Uh, and that, that there is a cultural convention or, or a legal practice of all robots had to have the first initial R. Like if okay. I was a robot, I'd be I'd be R. Ron Hubbard, R. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> okay. um, and you would be R. Jim. So now it's interesting that Demerzel doesn't uh, doesn't follow that convention. Mm-hmm. because this isn't part of the mainline robot series. And there are also there's a whole bunch of other potential reasons why she doesn't follow that conviction. But like the idea that like, yeah, these, these are artificial beings, but they might be completely indistinguishable from humans to the point that you would have to have some convention to tell them apart um, for whatever political or cultural reason you wanted to. Yeah. It's an interesting idea. Uh, like I said, I don't favor it, but uh, I can't point to anything to say that it's a completely crazy idea. And that would neatly explain why she was able to do the walk, why she's able to have mm-hmm. the vision, all that stuff. Uh, Scott drops a note, says, hey, guys, when talking about the robots causing emotional damage, one of Asimov's earlier robotic short stories, Liar, comes to mind. Um, this reminded me a lot of uh, the story that I talked about last week, but I looked up the synopsis on Wikipedia. It says through a fault in manufacturing a robot, RB 34, also known as Herbie is created that possesses telepathic abilities while the roboticists at us robotics and mechanical men investigate how this occurred. The robot tells them what other people are thinking. The first law still applies to this robot, and so it has deliberately been lying when necessary to avoid hurting humans' feelings and to mm. make people happy, especially in terms of romance. However, by lying, of course, it's hurting them anyway. Was confronted with this fact by uh, a scientist whom it falsely claimed her coworker was infatuated with her. Particularly painful lie, the robot experiences an insoluble logical conflict and becomes catatonic. Um, so All that right. just goes to show you, like, the, the things that Asimov liked to play around with the idea that like, you know, he's not even considering physical harm. It's emotional harm, mm-hmm. people's well beings and things like that. And robots are sensitive to it. So, uh, I thought that was interesting. Uh, cause I think the other story I told before about the, the robot, John, the robot, the, uh, sex worker was not an asthma. It was set in the Asimov universe of obeying the four laws or the, the three laws plus zero law, but it wasn't actually Asimov. This is an actual Asimov story. I feel like they might be taking liberties with that. I don't know that they're like 
specifically considering emotional harm. Um, you look at the scene with Demerzel last episode where she essentially tells Empire, tells Day that he has no soul uh, because he's an empty void who didn't see a vision. Uh, that seems to be intentionally harming him emotionally. And I don't it know what true. greater good it would serve for the Empire. So, but, you know, it's like I I would love to see like all of her ro- laws of robotics potentometers, you know, like if mm-hmm. she did, if she could save one human or 10 humans and, sure. you know, she probably problem. but there's yeah, but there's probably some percentage that says she probably should save the one person and like, you know, I'd love to know like this emotional harm index, like if Empire is saying I had a vision and I did not cheat and it was beautiful. Can she with the straight face then say, I'm glad because and I obviously wasn't straight face. There's a lot of turmoil. But I wonder mm-hmm. if, if like some of this was all given thought, because like I, I just thought that everything in the last act of that episode was just Demerzel in extreme ex- distress and mm-hmm. like to almost to the like to the catatonic breaking point. Yeah. Um, even yeah. even that like she was like emotionally wrought doing that, you know, put down to Empire. So. I feel like they, you know, they accounted for all that, but I don't know. Hmm. Uh, speaking of transferred consciousness, uh, Ramon says, I don't think the Harry Seldon or the Harry Seldon that came out of the vault is a hologram like in the ship with Gale. I think it was some sort of clone uh, which has had Harry's consciousness uploaded to it somehow. I mean, we know that there's a process for doing that. Uh, well, we also know he's not a physical manifestation because she hits the screens through him, right? She can walk. Well, but we're him. talking about the one coming out of the vault. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. I, I guess. Be. What are the, what are the strengths and weaknesses of having a clone transferred body versus a perhaps fragmented hologram memory? I mean, I guess the weakness is you have to successfully repeat the cloning process. Whereas well, once the transfer is done, it's done. And as long as you can mm. maintain the hardware, you're good. That's true. You're indefinite. Yeah. Whereas cloning yeah. will eventually, like the Cleons, have to to refresh that somehow. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I, I, I there's, I, I don't think there's any evidence that it's a clone versus a hologram versus anything. Like, I guess I would assume it's a hologram, mm-hmm. but, um, but also I don't. You know, and Goyer was making statements of, like there might be more to the vault, but I'm not sure if that was in service of the long running joke of what's in the vault. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, oh, there's also an ice cream parlor in there or something, or. <laughs> There's also more to be revealed because, like I said, I don't know what the hell that thing is doing, like digging into the earth and and shooting a beacon into space and open up a, a portal to another dimension. If it's just generating, <laughs> if it's just gestating a clone or generating a hologram, like, yeah, there might be more to what this this thing is doing. But I don't know. I, I read him saying that as we'll get to what Harry, why Harry's here next episode. Um, cause really he just steps out and we know that he is here, but what does he have to say? How's right. that going to influence the future? All that. Arcade shenanigans wrote in and said, I burned through the foundation books for the first time when you guys announced coverage for the show. Oof, might've been an error. Might've been, there's, there's mixed, yeah, mixed feelings maybe. about whether that actually enhances your enjoyment of the show or not. Uh, but I'd gone through the robot and empire series, but I'd never gotten back around to foundation. That's wild because I'm the exact <laughs> opposite. I started reading foundation and then kind of like never really got into the empire series and kind of like mostly stayed in the short stories, section of the robot franchise. 
for me, the experience of reading the books was interesting and in there are period piece dynamics and cultural touchstones where Asimov projected the culture of his time into a fictional future setting. Sort of like a rocketeer aesthetic mixed with sci- space and sci-fi. You also have the 40s and 50s optimism for the future, bright with technological advances. Sure, it was naive, but the old world London aesthetic mapped onto space outpost is a cool setting. And I'll say this. I don't even know it's naive. Like there is a more than fair chance that in 30, 40 years, we are all sitting around like, wow, we were worried about global warming, but we got the we we all went green and we sequestered a shit ton of carbon with these machines that literally suck it into the air and turn it into nanotubes and eject it into the ground. And mm-hmm. we're like, you know, just like you read turn of the century articles talking about if current trends continue, the streets of New York will be covered with horse shit to 100 meters deep. <laughs> right. And like they didn't see the car come like it, Yeah. This is I don't know is optimism for the future and mankind being able to solve its fucking problems with our giant ass brain and the resources we have. Is that naive optimism? Are we ready to give it up, Jim? Uh, I I guess not. I'm not, I'm not ready to give it up yet. Although I do really want to see the fiction where the horse shit piles up in New York, <laughs> where that culture is preserved for a hundred years. You gotta, you get, yeah, you got to bore you bore through the shit tunnel, you uh-huh. know, make shit tunnels in the streets, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and again, it's it's. Let me be clear. It's foolhardy to assume that we're going to technologically solve our problems. We should be proactive about preventing yes. them. I'm not saying we should just do whatever the fuck we want and just assume we're going to be able to fix it. It's clearly foolhardy. I'm just saying. Let's let's not let's not give in to doom just yet. Uh, Arcade continues. As much as I enjoyed the book series, I'm baffled that people would be mad at this show for not adhering to the books. As you've articulated, the books are far from perfect. As an example, there are several walk and talk exhibitions in a book where POV characters go to solve problems only to have no direct impact on the crisis at hand. At best, these were side adventures, but the adventurism peaked at a marvel of red tape and bureaucracy. In these cases, Asimov used POV characters to walk the reader through the setting, uh, like Trantor in two separate cases, without actually advancing the plot. All in, in my opinion, is the Foundation's book's greatest contribution to sci-fi are the concepts it introduced and reinforced in a rich fictional future universe in which it t- to tell stories, even new ones. I'm enjoying the hell out of the show and I appreciate the potential, potential they are setting up. I just wanted to share my perspective that it's possible to love the books and the show for their unique qualities and shared universe. Yeah. Uh, I think that's right. And I, I also think that there is a non-zero amount of people in forums and subreddits that are saying, how dare this book deviate? How dare the show deviate from the books? Asimov would never tell a story. And I just think that they have not read a lot of Asimov. In fact, maybe even any Asimov. Because some of the mm-hmm. shit I'm seeing people saying are contradictions are just like, literally, literally no. Like Asimov wrote a book that features uh, conflict exactly like this. So... You know, people get on bandwagons and, and people shout and argue about shit that's half true on the Internet. I, I don't, I don't sure. know. Yeah. But I agree. I think it's a great universe in which to set us to tell a story. And if Goyer wants to do some liberties, um, th- the question is, are is the story he's telling good? And mm-hmm. thus far, I think the answer is yes. Uh, by my lights. R.M. Stern. If I could be so bold, might I recommend that you listen to Goyer's interview on the Mindscape podcast by physicist Sean Carroll? I believe we'll provide you some additional insight into the Goyer's views, uh, into the Goyer, the Goyer, mm-hmm. the Goyer's views in the direction of the series. For example, I just listened to the feedback podcast and you were discussing coincidences. Well, Goyer specifically addresses this issue on the Mindscape podcast. 
Essentially, his position is that from a narrative perspective, he's fine using coincidences so long as they do not improve the position of the protagonist, but he believes that they are a fair game to benefit an antagonist. Um, okay. That's interesting. I kind of like because, that. I mean, the thing is, is like, um, I think it's some kind of fallacy to be like, well, it's oh, if coincidences are okay if they benefit the bad guy, but they're like ludicrous deus ex machina type shit if they benefit the protagonist because coincidences are just coincidences, man. But it feels but more satisfying, right? Like you want the odds to stack does. up against your hero so that they can overcome yeah, absolutely. them. And, and, and yeah. yeah, coincidence is one way to do that. And I, it, yeah, yeah. I, I it's like one of those that. things where like mathematically it's not satisfying, but narratively and dramatically yeah. it is. So sometimes you got to bend, <laughs> bend the math to, to make it a compelling story. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, said so additionally, there's also some interesting discussion about how Goyer views the hard science aspects of the show. I, I consider this much. I, I just got to this this morning of uh, the recording this podcast, um, but I'm going to definitely listen to this before our, this week's show, because I yeah. like Sean Carroll. I think he does a great, you know, pop sci podcast and yeah, having an actual fucking physicist talk about this stuff with Goyer is <laughs> at least as interesting as, as us nerds doing it. So For sure. Check that out. Mindcast podcast by Sean Carroll. It just came out seven days ago. Should be easy to find. Uh, Sierra. Sierra says you had mentioned in the book uh, that you took issue with the ad hoc way. The resistance was going to just swap dons and how the vault null field expanding didn't make much sense since it would kill everyone without Salvor, whom Harry couldn't have known about when he created the vault. First, I think the resistance was expecting an escape from Dawn one the following day, anticipating he would be able mm-hmm. to just sneak off and they would do the swap more seamlessly. But because dusk is who he is and Dawn was pers- pushed to escape the night before it had the resistance scrambling with very little plan. Obviously, they should have worked out all the contingencies, but in general, I think I felt so messy because it wasn't when or how it expected to go down. Uh, This is a fair, a fair point. Like, it's exactly what the episode raised. Like, oh, you were you've jumped the gun, but we're going to roll with it because what else are you going to do? So, fair point. Secondly, I think all of Harry's planning on Terminus was with Gale in mind. She was supposed to be there leading things. She would have known how to access to Prime Radiant and open the vault. Also, if we want to go into the G plus R plus equals S theory, Harry could have programmed the null field to recognize Gale's DNA, granting her immunity and in turn granting Salver immunity. Yeah, I just. Hmm. uh, I think the the thing that I will accept is it was coded to recognize Gale's DNA. Yeah. Now, I still don't see the utility of having that field expand to encompass the projected. Uh, place where the city is going to be built you know like why the fuck would you nullify everyone except for one single individual um, well I mean it, if he expects a crisis to be happening at the time between the Anacreons and oh, Terminus plus, he might want to shut down whatever bonkers shit is going on outside the vault enough yeah. for people to take pause and notice him when he comes out right to give one person the ability to like, like if, if, if things have gone, yeah, maybe that does make a lot of sense. Also, kind of presumably if Gail is there and spending 30 years cracking the prime radiant, she could maybe see that there is some kind of convergence. And when the uh, field starts expanding, that would prompt her to, you know, do her part to interface with the prime radiant to make, you know, Harry come out I, like, you know, rubbing the genie's bottle. There's, like yeah. I said, it, that, that's the thing about, that's the thing about judging, like, 
successes and pros and cons of this show is like we don't really know shit like even if you've read the books you don't know what story is being told right now and Mm -hmm. it's hard to say like oh they're fucking this up or oh they're not faithful to this when you know there's a lot of moving parts that haven't quite clicked into place yet and that that's my theory anyway um but that that's a good I think you're exactly right. Like having this be like some kind of like riot field. That's like, well, if, if uh, terminus has been taken over by a hostile force, which seems pr- pretty likely lock it down for everyone, except for the one person I trust above all. Yeah. Cause I, my yeah. first thought is like, how the hell Harry didn't know she was psychic or whatever she is. So like, how the hell could he have accounted for that? But I think he doesn't need DNA to yeah. Riot control. Yeah. Exactly. With, with the fence stuff. That's kind of why they put that fence stuff in there. Right. Right. But I thought the Empire did that. Like the Empire provided them with a fence just for like basic protection or something. Uh-huh. Um, there's there's I mean, obviously, the Empire provided them with a ship and some amount of technology and personnel. So like, yeah, I don't know. Um, but I think these are all reasonable workarounds for it. So let's move on to Evan. When I saw the rebellious Don get his throat cut, I thought, wouldn't his nanites fix that? This led me to two theories. One, did they Mm. somehow switch to two Dons before the guards came in and actually killed Imperial (laughs) Don and saved rebellious Don's live? Or two, will rebellious Don wake up, play dead with the nanites uh, while the nanites did fix him and we will follow him still? I mean, both of these guys are going to be killed eventually. I don't think he's talking his way out of this with Day, but but he might. He might. Because hey, here's it's here's a, uh, it's I, a damn good point. They took the nanobots out. We saw them take the nanobots out and transfer them into the other uh, Dawn. So, so, so there is a possibility that like there's a there is a injury so severe that the nanites can't fix it in time. Like if you sever both arteries, can those things knit the arteries back with the blood spurting out before you die? So it's, it's possible that just like too much damage is, you know, like uh, clearly these people can die because Goyer revealed in the previous podcast that in his mind, they have triggered the fail safe of having to decant the clone and get them out there because something's happened. Mm-hmm. So they can die. The question is how much damage I think a slit throat, should be nanite fixable but i don't know the other thing you got to th- consider is you know who would know that the fucking mm-hmm. master of shadows absolutely would know how much damage you could do to a nanite guy versus a non-nanite guy <laughs> sure yeah so if he slits the throat and thinks that's good enough then probably good enough but i don't know i feel like you, you take a shotgun to their head a resident evil style and maybe that does it but like yeah, anything short of sure. that, I have a hard time believing that a cut of any kind. Yeah, maybe if you if you get like three quarters of the way through the neck or something, that or if might you do it. The but spinal cord, like maybe then you're fucked or something. But uh, maybe, maybe depends on how yeah. good these nanobots are. Um, yeah, could you do like a hmm. like a Mary Antoinette kind of th- thing where it's like you do. The- <laughs> Uh, you separate, you, you, you guillotine them and then do you put the head right up to the stump? And if it's like within a couple seconds, the eyes are still fluttering. The nanites do their thing. And I, I don't know, uh-huh. I don't know. <laughs> but, but go with me here. Yeah. I agreed with you that I think that Don is going to not be able to talk himself out of this pit uh, okay. that he's, that he's in. But however, Mm-hmm. I read a couple of people vociferously arguing the other point in like on our on our discord. And then I, I think the Reddit that like 
Dawn or Day and Dusk kind of hate each other and are actively squabbling. It's entirely mm-hmm. possible that Day sides with Dawn or takes pity on him somehow. Um, I, like I said, I don't really believe this. This is another theory. There's going to be some kind of political reason that Day keeps Dawn to use as a, a, a fork to to attack Dusk with. And if that's the case, I actually think it's pretty fucking slick if they just screwed up which emperor is which and the the rebels in sure. in in the depths of their defeat actually achieve what they were trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a cool idea. It or, is. Or the rebellious Dawn is actually laying there dead, recovering with the nanites. And but that I that, that feels sloppy. Like I don't think the Empire just leaves these bodies here. I think the Empire grabs these things and they're just disappeared. Like this whole apartment is redecorated and has some other family from the scar moved in before like the room gets cold, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, I <clears throat> and you could do a lot of interesting stuff with that too later, right? To reveal it sort of like use the colorblind thing again except in reverse here where we notice oh shit he can see color yeah and that's the tip off right um yeah 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 there's a lot of interesting possibilities if that is actually what happened there that said I, i don't know i don't know is that the kind of story they want to tell here clearly they they don't mind uh a little subterfuge and a, a couple of twists so I'm kind of leaning toward, yeah, they might, they might go even further with this. It, it is a slippery slope because like now that we know the clones can be corrupted. Now that we know that the Imperial center can be penetrated to this extent, like it's, we're getting really close to Westworld territory where is this the real dawn? Is this the real dusk? Like, you know, that mm-hmm. is, is did, did Dimmerzel replace one? I mean, there, it's going to be very hard to say for sure. If we have an evil dawn running around doing evil dawn things like, you know, who, who's who, um, which has already been, you know, anytime you have clones, you got that problem. So, mm-hmm. uh, let's move on to Adam says he's totally respecting and joined the podcast. Uh, well, thank you. Um, my question is with all the vast resources and technology of the empire, why in the name of Selden couldn't they just stop the aging process for Cleon the first? Uh boy, that's a good question. Yeah, you would think those nanobots could do a little more than just put a band-aid on a cut. Um Yeah, I don't know. There's not really any way to say. From what I little I know, um from the the science of aging i know it's not just like cellular degeneration that you're mm-hmm. fighting against there's also these things these tele telem telem some mites or something there, there's a particular thing i think it's Tell-a-mears? an anti-cancer is it it's something like that yeah, yeah yeah i'm famously bad at pronouncing pronouncing things pronouncing things <laughs> um and it's like you 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 also have those where like this this is some kind of like old biological fight against uh, the the uh, cancer is like there is essentially um, a, a finite limit of how often your cells can divide and can and it's an arbitrary thing and when you you're done your body's just like all right can't do it no more mm-hmm. it could be that that's like just like you can't reverse that kind of you know you could you can you know you, you look amazing because you want all the sun damage you do to your skin is going to be removed all the wrinkles and stuff the, the, the wrinkles like that that's like damage as well but I, what i'm getting as it, it's entirely it, i think i think it's reasonable that like there's a limitation of technology that 
you just can't repair some damage. Like you just like immortality is just out of out of touch with a physical body. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the real question I guess you have to ask is why is Cleon doing it this way instead of like the Stargate style where you just like, you know, every every time a dawn is born, uh, his entire mental state uh, from the previous 400 years is injected into this child. Mm-hmm. You know, like, why is it always a new Cleon with a new experience and they have to learn only by verbal instruction and all that kind of stuff? Yeah. But there's so many cultural taboos and things, you know, like mm-hmm. there could be a cultural taboo about but about someone like living forever. And this is kind of like the workaround around that, you know? Yeah, especially with the robot wars. I mean, you would think you could see and i'm not saying that this is the case but you could see a culture getting a little bit scared of not just artificial technology but humanity put into artificial technology Um, harry selden might be doing something truly transgressive with with his you know helicon ship and transferring his consciousness to a computer this might be something that would be taboo to most cultures in the galaxy and it would make sense that Harry would transgress some of those taboos because he yeah. thinks he's doing it for the greater good. And plus, he doesn't have much respect for the Empire and for any kind of like static culture. So, yeah, yeah, I, that's it's it's there's like all kinds of things other than technology, because you, you're right. Like if you went to war against the robots and it was this thing that like maybe killed every everyone but 10 percent of the galaxy, this uh-huh. was cataclysmic event, you might at a bedrock humanity level think you know what's special about humans we fucking die those robots yeah. live forever and that's why they go wrong and like there's something special about you have your period of time you do the best you can and you hand it off to the next generation like i could see that like mm-hmm. like a religious you know kind of like cultural uh a bedrock all right the final email peter from new york city going back to the comments last week about salvor not being able to be the child of harry due to the actor being black and harry being white My sister, who has done casting in Hollywood, has mentioned that a lot of shows are now going towards what they call racially ambiguous casting, where race isn't a defining feature of a character unless otherwise noted. So when we see Salver, we aren't supposed to take their race into account when thinking about their parentage. Maybe Goyer could confirm that if you speak to him again. I could be wrong. My hunch, regardless, is that Salver is just special, similar to Gale and Salver's actual parents uh, are the parents that raised them. Um interesting hmm. so we got a we got a, a galian heretic here that says uh there there isn't a it isn't an r plus plus g <laughs> equals s uh i mean that's where humanity's headed right if you extrapolate thirteen thousand years or whatever to the future we're all just going to be kind of this mix it will all just be humanity but well, see, we I, only so- have like these distinct differences because we haven't interbred long enough for, right. and we developed in different environments Right. And now coming, we're coming together and eventually that will all g- kind of come out in the wash, right? Yeah, like all, all the diversity you see in humanity is something like 30,000 years worth of spread and geographic separation and adaptation to the climate. That's right. it. That's yeah. it. All the stuff that you see um, is a result of that. And I used to, because like, you know, we used to believe, uh, I used to belong to a religion that postulated that humanity would live forever on, on a paradise earth. And I, I always thought myself like that. What would happen is after several generations of people, you know, having sex and, and creating families and, and, and a per- per- perfect world where you don't have racism that we would all kind of like, yeah, we'd eventually become like this kind of light Brown, mm-hmm. you know, Brown haired, uh, Brown haired, uh, 
human species. But the more I know, like, I don't know that genetics works that way. I feel like no matter how much you mix up, you might have like a red haired child just like pop out because of the way the recessive and dominant genes or you might have like I, I talked about that experience last week of the twin sisters that one of them is very phenotypically white and one is very phenotypically black. Like yeah. you might have stuff like that because like that certainly you is to be outliers, case. right? Like it. it, it yeah, it'd be rare. It'd be yeah, I think, because rare. whatever has the advantage will inevitably become the default, uh, no matter how small that advantage is. Right. Given enough time. Although I got to say, because you, when you say like, I, I guess that's it depends on whether you think humanity is like post evolution, like that our ability okay. to like yeah. beat the environment and our bodies into the shape uh, is, is going to supersede like whatever our genes are going to do. Like we got sunscreen now. Why the hell would we? develop like you know very very dark skin um Mm -hmm. especially over thousands of years i I don't i don't know but um yeah it is interesting i don't how um it 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 is interesting i do know that like i think that hollywood is going to that more and more and especially i think in shows like this that are far future it makes a lot more sense to like cast like that than it does to try to cast to like you know any particular race or whatever or, or gender um, to be particular roles because like the idea that we would have as a star spanning as a galaxy spanning race that we'd have the same prejudices um, that we do now we'd still have prejudices I, I, I bet, imagine but they would be like probably planetary you know like those fucking anacreons <laughs> right. those yeah. fucking blue eyed thespians pieces of shit it wouldn't be like you know a, a particular skin color I guess I just cited eye color but anyway well yeah I mean once you get out into space it becomes sort of the the distinct pockets of humanity again right like we do all this mixing while we're on earth and then we get out into space where i'm assuming our technology will not be quite as advanced uh right away and so you have ten thousand years or more of people being sort of isolated onto planets yeah you develop uh despins with with the bright blue eyes uh and and things like that distinct features of different planets yeah you're right, because I, I, I was thinking about like Earth when I talk about post-evolution. But yeah, if you start living on a society or a planet's got 50 percent more gravity or two thirds oh, less. Yeah, or the expanse, like, like you right? Do, the expanse, the yeah. belters in space where everyone's like seven foot tall and lanky because they got no gravity. That blows the lid off of it. And, and yeah, once sure. you start separating, you know, like you get a colony ship of stock humans from the 21st century, you send them 10,000 years to Alpha Centauri. They're going to look way fucking different and there's going to yeah. be no intermixing of that gene pool. So like nope. they will continue to diverge probably. Um, but with faster than like, that's the thing. Like, yeah, once if, you hit it, faster than light, uh, well, not even faster than light, but instant again. traveled. It's, yeah, it's like, yeah, it's, it's a replay of the 20th century where everyone starts to, yeah. you know, anyway, it's uh interesting stuff. Thanks mm-hmm. for uh, helping us consider it, Peter. Uh, we have the fa- feedback email foundation at baldmove.com on a shout it out one last time. If you would like to be considered for next week's it should be a big, uh, podcast or, you know, it's like, uh, a big feedback week. It's going to be kind of a wrap up episode. Uh, we are going to try to get with, uh, Mr. Goyer, see if you'd like to come back and talk with us yet again. Um, but this will probably be your last chance. In fact, maybe go ahead and send stuff with, uh, cause, cause this is going to come together fast. Maybe go ahead and start sending feedback with Goyer in the subject line so I can, can grab those for the, the standalone Goyer interview podcast. If we get one, mm-hmm. um, I don't want to be presumptuous, but it seemed like he was, he's up for it. 
Um, yeah, uh, foundation of bald move.com. If you have a question specifically for us to, uh, propound to Goyer, make sure you put Goyer in that subject line. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of days, either late Thursday night or early Friday morning for the finale, which I haven't seen yet, but I'm going to see tonight as soon as, as soon as I get a chance, like (laughs) I can't wait. Uh, we'll have full coverage of that. And then again, the final feedback episode and hopefully another conversation with Goyer. Uh, thanks for being listeners. Uh, appreciate it. And we'll see you on the full podcast here in a couple of days. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.